0: Well, it's the 4th of July, so it seems fitting that we would have something of a patriotic sermon here, and we're in the end of Psalm chapter 2. Some of you are thinking, is this Psalm ever going to end? It seems like we've been studying this one chapter for months, and we probably have, but uh, it's very fitting. It's interesting where you end up in Scripture, um, just the timing of it. I feel like God orchestrates all that. Um, I was thinking about just the 4th of July. It's been a hectic week. Fourth of July kind of snuck up on us. We heard fireworks last night and then it occurred to us, oh man, we don't have any plans to go watch fireworks or anything. We just just forgot. I mean, it's so busy. I'm sure many of you are in the same boat. Um, I was just trying to think about the Fourth of July and uh, the clearest images I have of our founding fathers and and the events of Independence Day comes from the HBO miniseries John Adams. Has anybody seen... That HBO miniseries, John Adams. Very few. Okay, you need to check it out. It's very good, very well done. Um, Paul Giamatti, I think, plays John Adams. Really gives you a visual for what it was like, and it's shocking to me just how fragile the whole thing was. I mean, it's miraculous that this nation ever got off the ground. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how accurate this miniseries was. I mean, HBO, I guess, is not the definitive answer to history questions, but it seemed to be accurate, as far as I can tell. And it's amazing. These these men were just trying to figure it out on the fly. And they didn't all have the same opinions, and it just somehow, it came together. And here we are, still celebrating July 4th. Um, but there's a lot of differences between them, and now it seems like they're, uh, they're just raw. Those men, the way they talk, the way they Wrestled through political challenges just seems so emotional and passionate and raw. Where oftentimes it seems very polished, almost staged, uh, in my opinion today. The, the danger back then was so evident. I think Benjamin Franklin was the one that said, We'll either all hang together or we'll certainly hang separately. I mean, those men could have died for what they were doing. It was just it was very gritty and real. And I look back at those guys and I see their leadership. And just sort of stand in awe of them. I think all of us are that way. You just look at at those men, George Washington, and just all the people involved in the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and you just think those had to be really amazing leaders, really amazing men. And history looks very favorably upon them. Now contrast that with our opinion of politics now. Like we look back with great nostalgia and great patriotism at, at the politics at the beginning of our nation. What's the general outlook now? What's your general outlook now towards politics? I even see right now just sort of the shaking of some heads and, and stern faces, more so than usual. The stern faces I see from up here. My uh, dad—I don't think my dad and is saying this. He's not here anyway. But um, he has some Christian friends that he plays tennis with, and one of them is constantly sending forwarding him these emails. These conspiracy theory emails about President Obama. And some of them may have some grounds, most of them just seem ridiculous. And my dad is a very logical man and he'll he'll spend the time looking up the facts and email back and why are you sending me this garbage? But this Christian friend is like making it his passionate duty to try to destroy everybody's opinion of today's politicians and today's government. And he's on one. I I hear the general sentiment among the Christians I know is, what are we going to do with this mess? What are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. And if you have your Bibles, flip with me before we get to Psalms 2. Flip over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. This is Paul writing to a young pastor what he would like to see the church doing, that that young pastor is shepherding. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers. Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Maybe one of the reasons things seem to be in a a bit of turmoil right now, maybe Christians aren't praying for kings and those in authority. I mean, biblically, this is one of the clear statements of how we should relate to those in authority, especially on a national level, a kingly level. We need to be praying for these men. We need to be praying. And I think you can make a biblical case that, that, let's say our president, that he can't do his job if we're not doing our job we're not praying for them And I have to tell you you, you I set a course to, plot, to, to go through scripture And I just sort of go where it goes And it always reveals things in my heart That I didn't know was there Like I didn't realize That I'm not praying for those in authority In fact often I'm complaining about those in authority And here yet again scripture Sort of that scalpel sword That God uses Slices me open and shows me Here on July 4th Patriotic as I may be, I'm really not fulfilling my duty as a citizen. So I want this morning to encourage us to pray. In fact, we'll have a time for prayer after the sermon. And Psalm 2 is going to help us. It's going to give us some guidance in, in what to pray and how to pray. I mean, here it says, prayers, petitions. I'm sorry. Entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. I really don't think the president or any in authority can do their job unless we do our jobs and we pray for them. So I hope this will challenge you as it has me uh, here on 4th of July. Now flipping back to Psalm 2, that's where we're going to be, that's what we'll be wading through today, Psalm chapter 2. If you'd like to flip there with me, we're going to read the whole thing. This Psalm, if you don't remember, it's been a few weeks since I introduced this Psalm, King David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it with specific nations in mind that were trying to rise up against him. But then we see it used in the New Testament by early Christians in reference to to nations rising up against Christ. So I made the case a few weeks ago that this psalm is about a specific time in history, but it can be applied to all Christians, including ourselves. So, if you would please, if you're able, stand in honor of the reading of God's word, and we'll read the whole psalm in its entirety. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession.'" You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand it, receive it, and submit to it this morning. For the good of our nation, but more importantly, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This is not an easy song. This is not one of the easy ones. Um, It's not preached from all that much. It's not a popular but it's good to go through the unpopular passages too. There's gold in it. So in this song we see a basic principle here. The nations, the gatherings of, of people and the governments, will all eventually struggle against God and his anointing. When it says his anointed, he's referring to Jesus, the Messiah, and all those who follow him. And we talked about a few weeks ago, how the nations do struggle against Christianity in general. It's so restrictive. I mean, do you realize how restrictive our religion is? It says that there's only one way, there's only one truth, there's only one life, and it's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's very restrictive. It's impossible to have a, a huge gathering of people of all different religions and be a Christian nation. It's just, it really isn't possible. And we see that in our own nation. We see, we see, Our nation's struggling against the confines of Christianity as they try to remove Christian prayer from school. As you know, they don't let Franklin Graham pray because he's uh, not—he won't acknowledge Muslim faith as being legitimate as Christianity. It's logical, of course. This is what's going to happen, and it's going to continue. You know, Ten Commandments. People want to remove that. They want to remove in God we trust from our currency. We want to struggle against and away from this restrictive Christianity. And we, we should have known it all along. It's been right here in Scripture. The nation's rage against God and His anointing. So we see, and we saw last week, God's response to all of this. That God is transcendent above all of it. He's still God. I mean, it, whatever happens on earth, He's still God. He's up there, removed from the danger of it. He's transcendent. He's ferocious. We saw, you heard in that passage, just He... He's like a lion, a roaring lion. He's transcendent, he's ferocious. And he's sovereign, he still remains in control. So that's what has led us up to this. Uh, The verses we're going to read tonight are verses 10 through 12. And in these last verses we see that this psalm seems to be written mainly for leaders. The first couple of, of words here shows that David is writing to kings and Judges of the earth, your translation may made to say leaders instead of kings. So this is a psalm that might not feel immediately applicable to you and to me, because we're not kings. I don't know of anyone's royal heritage here, and I apologize if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any royalty in here. But everybody in here pretty much leads in some form or another. In your workplace, in your home, in your family, in your circle of friends, in our church Almost everyone is a leader of some sort And I know that everyone follows someone's lead So this psalm ends for all of us And I think it's going to give us a lot of insight in how to pray for our leaders nationally on July 4th Now there's three things in particular I want to point out that are going to, It's going to help us as leaders, it'll help us pray for our leaders as well And the first one is discernment. There in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Those first two words, now therefore, very important words in scripture. It means, based on what was just said, do this, or remember this, or know this. So based on what we just learned about God last week, his transcendence, his Fury is sovereignty. God is making a, 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 an appeal to the leaders. Show discernment. Take warning. Your translations may just say, be wise. It's referring to the, the ability to see, to see what's good and what's bad, to see what's right and what's wrong, what's wise and what's foolish, what's smart and what's stupid. A leader needs this He he needs vision to be able to see clearly And it's not so easy It's not so easy in your leadership or mine Um, Now you look back at the founding fathers And they seem very wise I print out some quotes from some of them uh, Mostly from Benjamin Franklin Because he was just the pithiest of them all But I thought I'd share these with you Dost thou love life Then do not squander time For that is the stuff life is made of That's Benjamin Franklin. All these would be great t-shirts. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest. It takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. These are all still Benjamin Franklin quotes. He said, be slow in choosing a friend, slower in changing. Diligence is the mother of good luck. A small leak can sink a great ship. I'm just sharing these with you. If you look back at their writings, you think, man, these guys really thought well. They just seem to see well he's right. Why don't I think this clearly? It wasn't just Benjamin Franklin. George Washington said, uh, it's better to offer no excuse than a bad one. That's pretty wise to say Thomas Jefferson said, he who knows best knows how little he knows. He says, do not bite the bait of pleasure until you know there's no hook beneath it. And there's lots more. I love quotes from our founding fathers. They just seem so wise. But what about today? How are, how are we as leaders? Do we see so clearly? How about our leaders of our, of our nation? Do they see so clearly? Now, I'm not trying to idealize these guys. I know that they weren't. They weren't perfect, really. I know history looks very favorably upon them. But it's one thing to have these pithy little statements. It's another thing to be able to see clearly and lead well when you have health care crisis, an energy crisis, an oil spill crisis, wars, um, uh, uh, laws to pass, um, immigration crisis. Economic crisis. It's, it's one thing to have pithy, pithy little statements. It's another thing to be able to lead well when it's so foggy and so much is at stake. Lives at stake. Lives hanging in the balance with the. And I'm not and I'm just talking about the president, I'm talking about all of our leadership for our government. Can you imagine that responsibility? Compare the stress of, of your leadership role and what's at stake there to that. And how hard it is to see clearly in our roles. It's not just hard, it's impossible. There's no way. Now add to that the very strong opinions of everyone else in the world. I mean, I, you know, just my leadership position here, everybody has a very, very strong opinion. And they're all different. And each of them thinks they're absolutely right. So you can't base it on what everybody's opinion is. I mean, I shudder to think of these guys looking at opinion polls and thinking, and, and trying to make decisions. Man, impossible. So how do we see clearly? What do we know as Christians? What's our light? You can even say it out loud. It's July 4th, anything goes. What is our light as Christians? Thing out loud in church you won't get struck by lightning I promise scripture says that this is our light this is the light for our path God's word he gave it to us so we can discern so we can be wise so we can see what's right and what's wrong what's foolish and what's wise what's smart and what's stupid what's dangerous this is our light now I cannot imagine trying to lead anything without this but many of our leaders do Many of our leaders do. Our founding fathers, they they knew their Bibles pretty well. I don't know about our current leadership. I know there, there are a bunch of different people in leadership now, but this is our life. So we as leaders need to apply this to our lives. We need to pray Scripture into the hearts of our leadership. We've got to be crying out for our leadership. We have to. As we're reading our Bibles, we need to keep them in our prayers almost as much as our own families. That's how God tells us to be as Christians. Because without the light, you're going to just destroy everything. It's like me trying to mow the yard over there, the parsonage. You know how you want to maintain your yard as a man, you know, it's your <coughs> dominion. But there's never time to just do it leisurely in the daylight. At least not for me. I'm always, it's a race against the clock. And the sun's going down. And I don't know if you're driven by the parsonage, but my lawn has a receding grass line. It's very self-conscious about it. It's mainly dirt. It's patchy and it's thin. And as the sun goes down, you cannot tell where you've been on that mower. It's impossible to tell. And maybe you experience this as as you know your lawns too. I drive by the Jameson's house I look at those perfect stripes. (laughs) And I mutter profanities at them. I'll be honest. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But if you drive by at dusk one of these days when I'm mowing, it'll look like I'm just going crazy out there. Because I don't know where I'm at anymore. I don't know what I've mowed, so I have to just turn around and I just have to look, do my best. I see a spring over there, I go get that, I see one over there. And there's no rhyme or reason to it anymore. Because you can't see the lines, you, you can't discern in the dark. And I should probably in those moments just stop and wait until I have light. But man, just... Think of our leadership trying to lead and the responsibilities and what's at stake in the dark. Gosh, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for ourselves and for those in leadership. So the first thing I see in here, discernment. The second thing is worship. Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry. And you perish in the way Some of your translations may say Serve rather than worship And do homage It may say something like kiss It's like uh, in in the old days When there were kings and they would have signet rings And you would do homage by coming in And you would kneel and you would kiss the ring That's what that's talking about If your translation says kiss Now when I talk to youth about worship It helps me to think of it this way Maybe it will help you as well The word worship comes from the word worth. So think of it as worth-ship. It's ascribing and recognizing the worth of something. And we do it all the time. Whatever you're going to decide to do for lunch today is going to be a worship decision. Because you're going to decide which is fresh house more worthy of my eating or whatever else. Burger King, I don't know where people go. Every decision you make is a worship decision because you're weighing the worth, the worthiness of things. So when the Bible tells us worship God, it's saying, open your eyes and see that God is the most worthy being of your energy, your passion, your time, your resources. So here, David, in light of who God is, that he's transcendent and ferocious and sovereign, is saying, Kings, judges, leaders, worship God. Do homage to him. Not to your people, not to yourself, not to anything else. Worship God. Any leader who does not worship God, who does not acknowledge God as the most real, the most tangible, the most prominent aspect of life will lead you astray. Any leader that does not recognize God as as God will lead people astray. I think that's a fact that you can support biblically. Because if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. You're going to be worshiping people, or plans, or politics, whatever else it may be. And they're all terrible idols. Anything other than God makes a terrible God. It can't satisfy. We will lead people astray. Leaders here, you will lead your people astray if you're not worshiping God. I just read a... um, this is going to make me sound like I'm some intelligent guy. I think most of you know me well enough by now to know that that's not necessarily the case. But I just read 75% of a Winston Churchill uh, biography. It was due back at the library before I got that last 25% down. But, I don't know, I wanted to expand my reading a little bit. I always wondered about him. I don't know much about him because I didn't pay attention in history class. And so I got it, and it was really, really interesting. It was very interesting. And I still don't pretend that I know a lot about him. But one thing that struck me if you read his speeches that guy was he was pretty gruff. He just sort of, it seems to me he just sort of said what he felt, said what he thought, and left no questions on the table I wonder what he really meant. Political correctness didn't seem to be a big concern to him. In fact, it seems like he had mainly enemies up to the point that he was really needed for the war. But I looked at those and I was like, man how refreshing. I mean He might be totally wrong, but at least I know what he's saying. And it's coming from his heart. Whereas often now you hear the speeches and you're like, "Well, What does that even mean? That almost sounds like he digested a bunch of opinion polls and outplopped this speech that's just trying to make everybody happy. What does it even mean? I don't even know. And I think that happens because when leadership doesn't worship God, it isn't worshiping its own position. It doesn't want to lose that position. That's the most important thing. Or worships the people. I don't want to stir the people. I want to keep the people happy. It leaves God out of the picture, and eventually it leads everybody astray. So we need to pray for our leaders that they worship God. We need leaders that look to God, not opinion polls. Now I was thinking about this, trying to make this clear in my own head, so maybe I can make it clear for you guys. Um, and I think leadership... Big-scale leadership, like the president and Congress and whatnot, and normal-scale leadership, like our leadership in our homes, in our workplace, in our communities, and our friendships. I think it's like navigating at sea. You know, can you imagine being one of the first ones to set out on a boat in the ocean? And land gets further and further away. And eventually you're out there and you don't see land anymore. And this is before you have, let's say, a compass or text messaging or any way possible of having a clue where you are, where you're going. Even before they really understood how to even read the skies. If you're out there on the sea trying to navigate without any stationary point to go by, you have no clue where you're going because the sea's constantly changing. And I think leadership's the same way. If you don't have God, God is the unmovable, the stationary, He will never change. Object that we need to keep our eyes on as we try to lead, as we try to navigate through life. And if you're not, if you're trying to navigate based on morality, that you know, popularly held morality or, or popular opinion or, or whatever, those things are always changing. You've heard the phrase, the times they are changing. Well, the morals they are changing, the, uh, the taboos they are changing, opinions are changing. Everything shifts. Everything changes but God. What, what's viewed as success changes. Desires change. You know, you look back at the founding fathers. It seemed to be the big desire was just freedom. We just want to be free to be industrious and be our own people. Well, that's not really the, the mantra anymore of our nation. I don't I don't pretend to know what it, what it would be now. Maybe it's still freedom, but not so much from tyranny of men, but tyranny of morality. You know, I just want to be free to do what I want with my body. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's just we want ease. I don't know what the desire is now, but that stuff changes. And if we have leaders that base their leadership based on all that, we're just drifting in the sea. And soon we'll be shipwrecked. Malachi 3, 6, you don't have to turn there, but God just says very plainly, I will never change. Now I thought of an example, and this is a very controversial example, but hang with me here. Um, This example about gay marriage That is a whole giant can of worms I'm really not going to open right now But this was the best example I could think of Um, I listened to this podcast called TED Meredith makes fun of me Because when I told her about it I said, TED, T-E-D She's like, I know how to spell TED But it stands for something It's Technology, Engineering Design Or Education Design Or something like that They have these interesting speakers one of them was speaking and he was talking about gay marriage, about same sex unions. And here was his argument. Okay? Let's try to follow his argument. He was for it, that it should be legislatively okay. And he was saying, those of you who are against it are against it because you think marriage is primarily about procreation, about having children. He was saying, in his opinion, those who are against same-sex unions are against it because they think the highest meaning of marriage is about having kids. And you can't have kids when same-sexes come together. But he said, but what about adoption? What about infertility? What about couples that just choose not to have children? Are their marriages any less legitimate? And then he moved from that point on to say that he thinks... That the primary, the most important aspect of marriage is companionship and commitment, and that that's the higher, the highest meaning of marriage, and so you can have that in same-sex unions, and so it should be okay. <coughs> now, what do you think? This is another one of those This is a foggy, foggy issues, and you you will find Christians on both sides, and the debate will rage. I think for a long time But as I listen to that And I listen to what he perceived As the, those against it Their argument and his argument And I realized He's not going far enough There's a deeper meaning yet To marriage It is deeper than just making babies But it's deeper than just Commitment And companionship as well See biblically God created everything out of nothing. He created the earth, plants, animals, everything. Each step of creation, it gets a little bit better, a little bit more glorious. He makes man, Adam, in his own image, unlike anything else. He, he gives him a soul in the image of God. The crown of creation. But it doesn't stop there. One step further, he creates Eve. Different from man, brings them together. This is Eve is the crown jewel. Of creation, and the climax of creation is the union of man and woman. But we don't really know exactly why that's so special until later in Scripture. And I want to read you something later in Scripture that Paul writes, and he refers to marriage as a mystery. It's in Ephesians five, and you you should probably just listen. He's giving, he's giving instructions about husbands and wives, like Paul tends to do. And I'm just going to start up there where he's giving instructions. He says, be subject to one another, husbands and wives, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, him, just as Christ also does in the church, because we are members of His body. And then it quotes Genesis and says, "For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is great, and here's the, the punchline. Here, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. All that instruction to husbands and wives He gets to the end and it says I know this is a mystery But really what I'm talking about Isn't husbands and wives at all I'm talking about Christ and the church Did you see how they were so interwoven As you read through Husbands be a husband Like Christ is toward the church Wives be a wife like the church Is to be toward Christ Submit to each other Husbands give yourself up like Jesus gave himself up for the church. Wives, open yourself up to your husband's leadership like the church ought to open itself up to Christ. And in the end, he says, all the stuff I've been saying about husbands and wives. He even refers back to Genesis. The reason, he says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. be joined his wife and she shall become one flesh. He says, the mystery of all that, ever since Genesis. The mystery of all that is that it's really not about the people at all. It's about Christ and the church. Marriage is the living image of the gospel. And everything God designed about it, including the genders, proclaimed the gospel. And so the debate by now has gotten so far from where God has even pictured the before that you can barely even discuss it. Because at some point we stopped worshiping God and we started worshiping ourselves. And this just isn't about, I know the same-sex marriage is picked on all the time. I'm not trying to pick on anything. It was just a good example. But somewhere along the way we stopped worshiping God, and we stopped worshiping ourselves. And by the time it hits the chairs in my office for Marital counseling, it almost feels too late. Because the people are certain that marriage is about me. Marriage is about my rights, my happiness ears are closed off to even hear the possibility that no, maybe marriage isn't about you. Maybe marriage is about God and the gospel, Jesus and the church. There's a depth of meaning when we worship God that goes far deeper than, than we'll ever come up with on our own just trying to use our own logic. We desperately need leaders that worship God. I wanted to read a few more quotes from our founding fathers just to remind us of how near to their minds God was as they navigated all this establishing our nation. George Washington said, well, let's see, where do I start? Yeah, George Washington said, the foundation of our national policy will be laid. Pure and immutable principles of private morality. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Thomas Jefferson said, Can the liberties of a nation be sure when we remove their only firm basis? A conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift from God. Thomas Jefferson was all about resisting tyrants. And he said, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. He saw it as worship. Now again, I don't know that Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. Like he was a deist. But the closer you get to worshiping the immovable object of God, the better the leadership is going to be. The Declaration of Independence begins near the beginning Says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by the Creator. God with certain unalienable rights. And then near the end, he says, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assemble, appealing to the supreme judge of the world, God. And George Washington, in his inaugural address, the very first one ever, he says a lot. He's got a vocabulary that just blows me away. But he said that in there, he says that I have to resort once more to the benign parent of the human race in humble supplication. He talks about how God has been pleased to bless America. God was just very present in the leadership. I think that's why we've done so well. But we need leaders who can discern on the national level and in the normal level. We need leaders that worship God. These are the kinds of things we need to be praying for our leaders. And the third one, God tells the kings and the judges of the earth to rejoice. Do you notice that? Hidden in verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. This has all been heavy, heavy stuff. God, transcendent, ferocious, and sovereign. Kings of the earth, be warned. You better discern. You better take warning. You better worship God or else. And then snuck in there, rejoice. Rejoice. God wants the leaders to rejoice. And there's, I think there's two points to that. First off, if you're a leader who can see clearly what's right and what's wrong, what's smart and what's stupid, what's wise and what's foolish, what's of God and what's not, you have much reason to rejoice. Probably the harsh part of leadership has just not been able to see. If you're a leader who has an unmovable object by which to navigate as you lead your people, you have a lot of reason to rejoice. That's the whole battle. So if you get those things in line, you can, you can rejoice. I don't know if there's a lot of rejoicing going on up there in Washington. Have you ever, I looked at Huffington Post, it's a, a website, newspaper, maybe they print a newspaper, I don't know. And they had a slideshow of all the presidents of the recent decades. Their, their, in their first days and their last days, every one of them had gone gray in just a couple years. Rapidly go, goes gray. Barack is going gray. You know, a couple months ago, he was shooting hoops out there and looking young, and now he's going gray already. How stressful it must be to try to leave Without the light. Now I'm not assuming that he doesn't have the light, but many I know don't. How stressful it must be. Without any, any way to guide yourself. The other thing I want to point out about rejoice before I close close up shop here. I just think it's beautiful that in all this, all these things God is saying, it's still clear He wants the kings and judges to be joyful. He wants our joy. I know people say, God doesn't care if you're happy, He cares if you're obedient. Well, He wants you to be obedient because He knows that's where the true joy is. And He wants our joy. Just quite simply, He, he does. He wants our joy. He wants us to be able to rejoice. These leaders, some in this room and some up in national leadership, are sailing in the dark with no compass, no compass. And they have to lay in bed, and in bed at night and know that people have died because of decisions they've made. And, I mean, it has to be crushing. So let's pray for them. Let's not, let's not just gripe. I mean, let's voice our opinions, but let's pray for them. All our leaders, from, from in our homes, in our friendships, in our communities, our workplace, our church, our, our local government, all of our authorities, we need to pray. We need to pray hard. That's our job. And that will enable them to do their job. So I think it would be appropriate right now if we did pray. If you'd pray with me. On July 4th this morning, let's close this sermon by just a word of prayer for those in leadership over our country. I think that would be very honoring to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessings that you've poured out on us. Like the very last line of the psalm says How blessed are all those who take refuge in you May we all take refuge in you this morning And right now we, we come together as your people In obedience to your word And we just cry out to you on behalf of those who lead our country Or please give them the light of your word Give them a taste for scripture Even right now wherever they are Wherever they are. If there's a Bible nearby, maybe they would just be drawn to it for some reason. Shed the light on their path. and please be gracious and merciful to these men and women whom you've put in authority, who have so much responsibility. Please be gracious to them. Give them discernment. Give them wisdom. And I pray that you would work in their hearts in such a way that you could soften them so that they could see you and see your glory and worship you. That you would become their immovable object by which to navigate. In all their decisions and everything they do. And in so doing, I just pray that you preserve them from the judgment that is to come. I do think leaders, just like teachers, will face a strict judgment. Please be gracious to our leaders. Please bless them in this way. So that they can rejoice. We pray for the joy of our leaders. And we know from your word that we need to be praying this way. Help us to pray this way. So that we could live peaceful lives and worship you. And continue to enjoy this freedom that you've blessed us with. Lord, we do thank you for the blessing of living in America. It's really so luxurious. It's so luxurious when you look around in a lot of other places in the world. Thank you. And Lord, we confess that you are our only good. And we have to humbly confess that all that we have is because of you. Undeserved, but you love us so well and so much. We thank you. And we rest in you on this July 4th. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.